0: Chapter 4 of the Story of My Life and Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Story of My Life and Work by Booker T. Washington. Chapter 4 How the First Six Years After Graduation from Hampton Were Spent. In the fall of 1875, I returned to Malden and was elected as the teacher in the school at Malden, the first school that I ever attended. I taught this school for three years. The thing that I recall most pleasantly in connection with my teaching was the fact that I induced several of my pupils to go to Hampton, and that most of them have become strong and useful men. One of them, Dr. Samuel E. Courtney, is now a successful physician in Boston and has been a member of the Boston Board of Education. While teaching, I insisted that each pupil should come to school clean, should have his or her hands and face washed and hair combed, and should keep the buttons on his or her clothing. I not only taught school in the day, but for a great portion of the time taught night school. In addition to this, I had two Sunday schools, one at a place called Snow Hill, about two miles from malden in the morning and another in malden in the afternoon the average attendance in my day school was i think between eighty and ninety as i had no assistant teacher it was a very difficult task to keep all the pupils interested and to see that they made progress in their studies i had few unpleasant experiences however in connection with my teaching most of the parents notwithstanding the fact that they and many of the children knew me as a boy, seemed to have the greatest confidence in me and respect for me, and did everything in their power to make the work pleasant and agreeable. One thing that gave me a great deal of satisfaction and pleasure in teaching the school was the conducting of a debating society which met weekly and was largely attended both by the young and older people. It was in this debating society and the societies of a similar character at Hampton that I began to cultivate whatever talent I may have for public speaking. While in Malden, our debating society would very often arrange for debates with other similar organizations in Charleston and elsewhere. Soon after I began teaching, I resolved to induce my brother John to attend the Hampton Institute. He had been good enough to work for the family while I was being educated, and besides had helped me in all the ways he could by working in the coal mines while I had been away. Within a few months he started for Hampton, and by his own efforts and my aid he went through the institution. After both of us had gotten through Hampton, we sent our adopted brother James there, and had the satisfaction of having him educated under General Armstrong. In 1878, I went to Wayland Seminary in Washington and spent a year in study there. Reverend G.M.P. King, D.D., D., was president of Wayland Seminary while I was a student there. Notwithstanding, I was there but a short time. The high Christian character of Dr. King made a lasting impression upon me. The deep religious spirit which pervaded The atmosphere at Wayland made an impression upon me which I trust will always remain. Soon after my year at Wayland was completed, I was invited by a committee of gentlemen in Charleston, West Virginia to stump the state of West Virginia in the interest of having the capital of the state moved from Wheeling, West Virginia to Charleston. For some time there had been quite an agitation in the state on the question of the permanent location of the capital. A law was passed by the Legislature providing that three cities might be voted for. These were, I think, Charleston, Parkersburg, and Meddingsburg. It was a three-cornered contest and great energy was shown by each city. After about three months of campaigning, the voters declared in favor of Charleston as the permanent capital by a large majority. I went into a large number of the counties of West Virginia. And had the satisfaction of feeling that my efforts counted for something in winning success for Charleston, which is only five miles from my old home, Malden. The speaking in connection with the removal of the capital rather fired the slumbering ambition which I had had for some time to become a lawyer. And after this campaign was over, I began in earnest to study law. In fact, read Blackstone and several elementary law books preparatory to the profession of the law a good deal of my reading of the law was done under the kind direction of the hon romes h freer a white man who was then a prosperous lawyer in charleston and who had since become a member of congress but notwithstanding my ambition to become a lawyer i always had an unexplainable feeling that i was to do something else and that i never would have the opportunity to practice law As I analyze at the present time the feeling that seemed to possess me then, I was impressed with the idea that to confine myself to the practice of law would be going contrary to my teaching at Hampton, and would limit me to a much smaller sphere of usefulness than was open to me if I followed the work of educating my people after the manner in which I had been taught at Hampton. The course of events, however, very soon placed me where I found an opportunity to begin my life's work. My work in connection with the removal of the capital had not been completed long when I received an invitation from General Armstrong, much to my surprise, to return to Hampton and deliver the graduate's address at the next commencement. I chose as the subject of this address, the force that wins. All who heard the address seemed pleased with what I said. After the address I was further surprised by being asked by General Armstrong to return to the Hampton Institute and take a position, partly as a teacher and partly as a postgraduate student. This I gladly consented to do. General Armstrong had decided to start a night class at Hampton for students who wanted to work all day and study for two hours at night. He asked me to organize and teach this class. At first there were only about half a dozen students, but the number soon grew to about thirty. The night class at Hampton has since grown to the point where it now numbers six or seven hundred. It seems to me that the teaching of this class was almost the most satisfactory work I ever did the students who composed the class worked during the day for ten hours in the sawmill on the farm or in the laundry they were a most earnest set i soon gave them the name of the plucky class several of the members of this plucky class now fill prominent and useful positions while i was teaching i was given lessons in advanced subjects among those who assisted me in that way being dr h b frizzle who was then chaplain but who is now the honored and successful successor of general armstrong about the time the night class was organized at hampton indians for the first time were permitted to enter the institution the second year that i worked at hampton in connection with other duties i was placed in charge of the indian boys who at the time numbered about seventy-five i think I lived in their cottage with them and looked after all their wants. I grew to like the Indians very much and placed great faith in them. My daily experience with them convinced me that the main thing that any oppressed people needed was a chance of the right kind, and they would cease to be savages. I have often wondered if there is a white institution in this country whose students Would have welcomed the incoming of more than a hundred companions of another race in the cordial way that the black students at Hampton welcomed the red ones. How often have I wanted to say to white students that they lift themselves up in proportion as they help to lift others, and that the more unfortunate the race and the lower in the scale of civilization, the more does one raise one's self by giving the assistance. This reminds me of a conversation which I once had with the honorable Frederick Douglass. At one time Mr Douglas was travelling in the state of Pennsylvania, and was forced on account of his color, to ride in the baggage car, in spite of the fact that he had paid the same fare as the other passengers. When some of the white passengers went to the baggage car to console Mr Douglas, and one of them said to him, I am sorry, Mr Douglas, that you have been degraded in this manner mr douglas straightened himself up on the box upon which he was sitting and replied they cannot degrade frederick douglas the soul that is within me no man can degrade i am not the one that is being degraded on account of this treatment but those who are inflicting it upon me my experience has been that the time to test a true gentleman is to observe him when he is in contact with individuals of a race that is less fortunate than his own this is illustrated in no better way than by observing the conduct of the old school type of southern gentleman when he is in contact with his former slaves or their descendants an example of what i mean is shown in a story told of george washington who meeting a colored man in the road once who politely lifted his hat lifted his own in return some of his white friends who saw the incident criticized washington for his action in reply to their criticism george washington said do you suppose that i'm going to permit a poor ignorant colored man to be more polite than i am at the end of my second year at hampton as a teacher in eighteen eighty one there came a call from the little town of Tuskegee, Alabama, to General Armstrong for someone to organize and become the principal of a normal school, which the people wanted to start in that town. The letter to General Armstrong was written on behalf of the colored people of the town of Tuskegee by Mr. GOW W. Campbell, one of the foremost white citizens of Tuskegee. Mr. Campbell is still the president of the Board of Trustees, of the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, and has from the first been one of its warmest and most steadfast friends. When Mr. Campbell wrote to General Armstrong, he had in mind the securing of a white man to take the principalship of the school. General Armstrong replied that he knew of no suitable white man for the position, but that he could recommend a colored man. Mr. Campbell wrote in reply that a competent colored man would be acceptable. General Armstrong asked me to give up my work at Hampton and go to Tuskegee in answer to this call. I decided to undertake the work, and after spending a few days at my old home in Malden, West Virginia, I proceeded to the town of Tuskegee, Alabama. I wish to add here that, in later years, I do not envy the white boy as I once did. I have learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacle which he has overcome while trying to succeed. Looked at from this standpoint, I almost reach the conclusion that often the Negro boy's birth and connection with an unpopular race are an advantage, so far as real life is concerned. With few exceptions, the Negro youth must work harder and perform his tasks even better than a white youth in order to secure recognition but out of the hard and unusual struggle through which he is compelled to pass he gets a strength a confidence that one misses whose pathway is comparatively smooth by reason of birth and race from any point of view i had rather be what i am a member of the negro race than to be able to claim membership with the most favored of any other race i have always been made sad when i have heard members of my race claiming rights and privileges or certain badges of distinction on the ground simply that they were members of this or that race regardless of their own individual worth or attainments